Lord, will you bless your word to us? Will you let it be life to us and transforming in Jesus' name? Now, we're beginning a, a series this autumn on Thessalonians. I, I thought first off I'd read um, from the Acts of the Apostles just so that we know the, this is how the church was planted, okay? So before we look at the verses I'm preaching on this morning, Acts 17, and when they'd passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apolli, 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 they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And his, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some, of our, uh, some other brothers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house and they are defying Caesar's decrees. Notice that. They are defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil and then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away. Go to Berea. The year for this, and this is important as we read the book, the year for this is, well, about the year year 49, we know that because of elements in the story, it's the year 49 and in the autumn. Paul then, if you read on in the Acts of the Apostles, they kick him out and he goes to Berea. Makes the gospel known in Berea and then the people from Thessalonica go to Berea to chase him out of Berea. He goes to Athens on Mars Hill and all of that and then just goes a few miles west to Corinth. When he's in Corinth, he writes this letter. So he's writing this letter mere months, shall we, probably not more than 12 months after these people who've come to Christ out of Judaism, out of paganism, their new, raw, I don't know how, you, how spiritual you were after 12 months, but that, that this is a baby church. And so then when we, we I'm just going to read the five verses from Thessalonians, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before God the Father, listen, this is after less than a year, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power 
with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction you know how we lived among you for your sake. It's a church that was born in troubled times. They've been chased out. Their founder has fled. Not an auspicious occasion, circumstances for the church to do really well. They're in a, a hostile and persecuting context. The Jewish synagogues will be after them. Would it have affected the livelihoods of the people? It was a very secular, very Roman town, capital, the Roman capital of Macedonia, on the Ignatian Way, trade route going east, very important, very Roman. And uh, it, the Romans made it a free city. So it was a little bit of Rome uh, planted in Greece. And uh, the, the, it, it was the context where Caesar was venerated specially. And it's very interesting, from the, this very period, you, you have Caesar's life and Caesar's, wor- Caesar's words being described by the word evangel. That Caesar's life and words were the good news. They actually use that same Bible word, which gives real force, doesn't it, to the, 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 the charge that's raised against them, that they're acting against Caesar. They're proclaiming another king, another evangel, another set of good news. So a very difficult context, very threatening. And yet they do really well. Chapter 3 and verse 6 says that Timothy had brought news. So it says that Silas and Paul legged it, but somehow Timothy was able to stay and then these months later had made his way down to join up with Paul in Corinth, where he wrote the letter from. And, and Timothy's report says that the church is flourishing. It's not only flourishing. The fame of what God has done in Thessalonica has gone widely. Now, this is my question this morning. How did the church survive, let alone flourish, We're looking at signs of a healthy church, but how did they prosper? And here's my question. How many months did Paul have there? Well, not many. Shall we give him three? What foundations did the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas put into the church that produced such resilience? Because I think there are hints clearly in the passage that we have before us. And there are two sides to this that by the, by the time we've looked at them, we'll almost think, well, these are in conflict one with the other. But let me take the first one. The first thing that Paul seems to have taught the Thessalonians was that it's God who starts churches. That he says, that, and he, he brings in the three persons of the Trinity to describe how what they were doing, what God was doing through each of the persons of the Trinity um, in Thessalonica. And uh, he begins by saying that the, the, the believers in Thessalonica were in God. You'll see it there. And when he's writing to, it's interesting, there's a slight 
tweak here. When he's writing to Philippi or Corinth, he talks about to the church which is in Corinth. He doesn't quite say that here. He says to the Thessalonians who are in God. That, That Paul had taught the Thessalonians, if you like, that God was their environment. However hostile it is around them, that God was their identity, their situation. It was God they belonged to. It was God that was the most important factor. God's presence around them and, and the, 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 the sense of their union with God, even in Thessalonica, rather like we've been talking about our union in Christ, but, it, but he begins with this to say that the church in Thessalonica are in God. And particularly in the love of God. Verse 4, that, uh, we're, we're, that uh, <clears throat> for we know brothers love by God. Right? So this is the first thing he's saying about them. This is the, the, these are the foundations that he's laying in the lives of these believers. That they are a people loved by God. And he uses this word agape. That, that this costly love. This undeserved love. This sacrificial love where God loved us. That God shows his love for us in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us when we were undeserving. Now the Romans, they didn't use this word. This was actually a very rarely used word until the Christians adopted it and gave it its particular meaning. That love to the Roman world was eros. And sometimes we think that's erotic love. It It didn't quite have that sense that they loved the hero. They loved the celebs. Uh, and they, they loved the, 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 the chariot with the stereophonic sound. And it was the love, joke, the, the, it, was, it was the love that wanted to possess or be, be in the company of that which was wonderful and worthy of love. Oh, I just love that chariot. And I want to have that chariot. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of aspiration. But that's not how God loves us. He hasn't loved us because we are just one magnificent chariot. He, he loves us because the wheels have come off. Doesn't he? He, he, he loves us because we're totally unworthy. And, and Paul, however many months he has, has taught us that taught the Thessalonians, you are in God. And brothers, he's loved you, loved you. And there's something in that, isn't there, that garrisons the heart. Part of God's essential essential nature. This is our God. He loves in unremitting passion for his people. Jesus loved the church, loves Thornhill, Loves, if you're a visitor, the church that you come from. That, that they were in God's. Secondly, they were in the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and his grace. There's a lovely tweak that the format of the letter that's above my head, um, the format of the letter is just a bog standard. They didn't say, dear Fred, uh, from John. They said, from John to Fred, that the shape of it is just normal. But Paul has changed it because 
if you were writing this letter, dear, whatever, in the first century, you would say greetings and peace. Paul changes that. He says grace and peace. And he, he, he's bringing to their attention the, the, the love, the, the, the grace, the peace that comes through Jesus, through having forgiveness for knowing that I've been reconciled to a holy God and I have a relationship with this God which works even in Thessalonica. And then verse 5, the third person of the Trinity, that the Spirit of God had worked among them powerfully, powerfully, evidently. What, what kind of signs and wonders that had been? We're not told. He's not really worried. It, it's, it's not the, the phenomena that are important to Paul. It, it's the presence of the Spirit and his convincing, convicting power that brought them to faith in the first place. So the first thing he's saying is that God, all three persons of the Trinity has worked in Thessalonica. And God has done this so openly, so evidently, that it, it, hey, he says and it, that he loves you. And he's cho- it's obvious he's chosen you. I mean, God has made such an initiative in your life. I mean, it's blatantly obvious that God has chosen you. I, I don't know how you get on with feeling chosen or elect or selected, or predestined. I don't know how you get on with that kind of thought. Sometimes people like to be controversial about it. But actually what Paul is saying here is that God has embraced you. He's chosen you. He, he, he's decided to wrap the arms of heaven round you. Ah! And he planned that long ago. This initiative isn't something he kind of took upon himself at the last minute because he thought it was a good idea. This is the plan of the ages to love you. I mean, and you're not a lovely chariot, and I haven't got to claim what he saw in you, but loved you he did. How wonderful is that? And and that whole reality is ringing round the hearts of their, and, and, and giving strength and security for this church to survive, kept by love. And uh, not by merit, not because they've deserved it, but even though they were undeserving. In the Old Testament, God chose a nation. In the New Testament, he chooses individuals and embraces them and adopts us. I, I haven't been adopted. My mum and dad kept hold of me for reasons beyond my understanding. Um, but but the, the, the wonderful thing about adoption is that at some point, the, the, the adopting parents said, I'll have that one. If you're adopted, there's something very special in terms of, of those who, you know, mum and dad, you had me, stuck with me, would have swapped me on the market. I'm sure if there was one. But but if you're adopted, it's because God has chosen it. And he says in the second letter to Thessalonians, but we always ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, look, from the beginning, whenever that was, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus. 
I hope this morning you feel chosen. Liz tells the story of an occasion when our children were young. And uh, we were living in Kevin Creeborne, the other side of Bridgend. And uh, it was, we were living in a cul-de-sac and the, there were older kids from the church who used to kind of come down to our bottom end of the cul-de-sac to ping a rugby ball. Andrew could do a reverse spin pass off his left hand by the time he was about six. And uh, so it was just, you know, what else do you do uh, when you, with your mates, you just ping a rugby ball. And um, that, and w- that one of the boys, Robert, um, was just a lovely kid. And he, he took a particular interest in Andrew, and he was about three or four years older, but he, he included him. He was just a great boy. And, uh, but uh, one night, Andrew, Andrew turned to his mum and said, I, I think at times you like Robert more than you like me. One of those kind of crisis moments for parents. And Liz kind of prayed quick and said to Andrew, said, Andrew, if all the boys in the whole wide world were lined up and I looked at them all, I would choose you. And his eyes lit up. And after that, from time to time, he'd say, tell me, mum, mummy, about all the boys being lined up. Tell me again. And in the same way, we need to let God tell us again that we are, he has chosen us and loved us and embraced us. And it's, you know, to think that from the beginning, in the relational trinity, where the trinity are loving each other and relating to each other, they decided that they'd let the love overflow. And so they made the world. And then it all went wrong. So they sent a lifeboat to rescue. Not just one lifeboat. That in the purposes of God, to, to send a lifeboat to every community. That's why we plant churches. Because the local church is the lifeboat. It's what God has sent into the world. It's plan A. There isn't a plan B. That Jesus brings salvation through the church. We, we are his embassy in, from heaven. We, we are a community. That, that, that this, we are a brotherhood. That Paul uses in one and two Thessalonians, very small letters, 21 times he talks to us about us as being family and brothers. This church that is loved and the darling of the universe. Something that we should handle with care and love the church and value the church and give our lives to see the church prosper because God builds churches. That's one half of, his, of the reasons why the church had survived. The second half is that churches, when I say churches need watering, that there's this team and there's only three of them and two of them leg it. Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, the same name, and Timothy, itinerant, supporting teams who come and lay foundations in churches. Paul, writing to Corinth, said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace of God has given me, 
I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. So Paul saw his apostolic ministry of going to emerging new churches and laying these foundations. It was the foundations that Paul laid that meant that the church had the tools to survive and prosper. And that, that what, what did the team do? Well, they taught the truth. They talked about grace. They talked about the love of God. They, verse 10, and this is not my text, so I'm not pinching somebody else's, but that, listen to what he talks, and how you turn to God from idols. So he talked to them, told them about the danger of idolatry and forsaking them, repentance, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's a good insight in terms of the scenario that Paul has taught and laid a doctrinal gospel foundation. And he, he says in verse 5, how the gospel came to you and, and the effects that it produced. But he not only taught truth, he modeled truth. By their sacrificial living, they reflected the gospel. And uh, the, 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 in verse 3, the, the, this triplet of faith, hope, and love, uh, often in the New Testament, these three words are put together. The, 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 the order is slightly different. Remembering before God and the Father, one, your work of faith, two, your labor of love, and three, your steadfastness of hope. Now, after just matter of months, where did that come from? How did they ever learn to live like that, for goodness sake? I mean, we've been Christians for 30, 40 years, and we still haven't got it. Well, some of us. Well, because they've seen the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy lived. They just modeled themselves on them. They live the gospel. They, they, they model the doctrine and model the Spirit's power. How important it is to actually see people who genuinely move in the Spirit and exercise the gifts and the miraculous of the Spirit. How, how, how utterly helpful it is to be with people that are credible and you can just see how the Spirit works in the way that they minister. I mean, isn't that how we know? Well, that's how I learned, I hope. But then thirdly, they, it says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our praying, prayers. It wasn't a case of out of sight, out of mind when they've legged it out of Thessalonica. They gathered the team together and prayed constantly, persistently. They, they seemed to think that if they saturated the search situation with prayer, that the church had a better likelihood of surviving interesting thought that, that they seem to think that they were caring for the church when they were praying for the converts that they that were they were securing the church's future by praying what a novel idea what an interesting tactic we can't do very much else and it says that they prayed verse 2 together as a team they, they gathered the tame team together and there are three verbs that are used here which I think are quite helpful when we think about praying for the church. Mentioning, Lord, Thornhill. Remembering that what God has done 
and knowing what God's purposes are, verses 2, 3, and 4, seem to be essential for their health. Now, here's the contradiction. And I'm not going to try to resolve it, but I just want to just ping it out because I sense we will all have a sense of this. <laughs> if, if, if it's God who does church, and if God has chosen you, why pray? I mean, if God's got it all in hand and he's doing it, what's this prayer thing about? I mean, isn't God going to do it all? Doesn't it all depend on him? Isn't salvation from the Lord? So why is Paul therefore saying, well, no, no, it isn't just what God does. It isn't just divine responsibility. We have to hold this tension. And the church tends to ping from one fatalism on the one, oh, well, God's going to do it. You know, we just need to pray for revival and sit and do nothing. And I pray for revival. That's a dangerous, that's a, there's fatalism in that. Or on the other hand, we're all activists and we can sort out God's church and God's problems for him. And uh, we have to hold the two. We, that, that we have to realize that God has chosen us but we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian, David? I, well, I don't really want to accept your labels, but I believe that both the essential truths are in the Bible, and I can't reconcile them, but I have to hold them both. That God loved me before the world was made is wonderful. But that God expects me to respond and take responsibility for the church is also wonderful. The balance, the tension we must hold. And it, 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 was, it was these things that the team influenced people by. That how would the church have survived if Paul, Silas and Timothy hadn't done what they did? Well, not well, I suspect. And the, 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 it's, the lesson to me in this is that Thornhill needs influences from outside. Whoever our Titus and Timothy are, that a lot of our troubles have been because we've thought, oh, we'll sort it all out ourselves. That's a crazy way to do it. That's not in the Bible. The Bible has that people who we know and respect are in relationship with us can speak in and help us to see things that otherwise we wouldn't. I mean, it's in the book. But it, there, there's a wider sense here, isn't there, of we're all influencers. And none of us are an island unto ourselves. And we need the influence of others. We need, some of us need to let some barriers down here. We think, oh, well, I'll read my Bible and pray and I'll manage on my own. No, you're not meant to manage on your own. I, I, if you, I can have the first of the pictures. You've seen one of these before. You've seen Joel, that's me, waving. I don't know what I'm pointing at. I, I normally hold myself up with that stick. Uh, this was last week going up onto Weinvach on the Black Mountains. And that's Joel with me. Joel's one of our grandsons. He's, uh, he's, he did Ben Nevis a few weeks ago. He's six. Um, he, he did uh, Snowden a couple of years ago. And uh, he, but he wants to do Scarfell Pike, so he's done the three before he's seven. He's, he wants to get into the Guinness Book of Idiots as well. <coughs> 
But I, I can't pretend that I haven't got some responsibility for this. Because if you look at the next picture, that's me. Can you believe that? I used to have hair. And that's Andrew, our son, the kind of Bible course man. Um, and, 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 and Joel is Andrew's boy. And you think, oh, I, d- I didn't plan it. I didn't have a strategy that would make a little boy of six want to go up Ben Nevis and do all the Munros before he's ten. But he caught it because of influence, often unseen influence. And it's my fault, basically. Let's hope he doesn't fall off when he's doing Scarfell Pike. But we are all influencers, aren't we? And and they would not have had that place of faith, hope and love without the influence of these men. And the, uh, again, this is for the next preach, but verse 8 is, is, is astonishing. It says that they received the word and the word has gone everywhere. They, they modelled how Paul and Silas and Timothy did the gospel and then they did the same thing. What a profound influence. Wouldn't you like to influence people like that? I would. You know, this, this nonsense, and I, it's the worst quote I know of. I preach against it. And they say that Francis of Assisi said it. There's no evidence anywhere, you know, that in all, always, preach, always preach the gospel and where necessary use words. I mean, I can't imagine a more non-biblical, anti-biblical phrase. I can't imagine a worse one. Because it was the word that came. We don't separate the gospel from the speaking about Jesus every opportunity. It's not when necessary use words. It's all the time use words. Because that's how the gospel's known, isn't it? That's how it happened in Thessalonica. And we need to be those influences, longing to see the church prosper, longing to be deeply on our heart to see Thornhill do just as well as Thessalonica did. uh, Not waiting for revival in the never-never, but longing to see the Spirit of God working now. Longing to see the the wonderful works of God in my day. Longing to see conviction of sin and convincing people of the truth of the God. Loving the church. Encouraging one another. Being good influences. But there's also... It's also necessary to be part of the church. And I'm preaching to the converted, I know. But I have to become a Christian before I can be actually genuinely part of the church. I have to be chosen. God is calling, and it isn't enough that God calls. It's that I respond to the grace of God. To the, I need to get in the lifeboat of God's salvation. I, I, I need for myself to receive the grace of God, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to receive his forgiveness and be reconciled to a holy God so I have a relationship that works. That's what being a Christian is. And however important the church is this morning, It's also important that you 
receive this good news. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you for your word. Thanking you, Lord, that you have chosen us, you've, you've loved us, your sacrificial love has embraced us. You've made us part of a family, a, brother, a brotherhood. You've brought us into your purpose for the ages. You've made us part of your church. Lord, there will be some of us here this morning who are not quite sure whether we're part of this wonderful, wonderful rescue mission yet or not. And so just in the quietness of our hearts, just for some of us, Lord Jesus, I come to you for your forgiveness and grace. I want you to embrace me in love. I want to respond to your call so that I may commit my life to be part of the church, to faith in Jesus Christ, to the work of the Spirit in my life. Lord, this morning, at the start of this church year, I give my life to you. And we all say amen. Lord, at the start of this year, Lord, will you build your church? Will you make me a great influence in the building of your church here? For Jesus' sake. Amen.